Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show, President Trump casts a slur on a wide swath of the world's nations, calling them shitholes. What does the smear say about the man who uttered it? And what is the future of immigration in the Trump era? Then, a possible thaw in the frigid relations with North Korea. President Trump says he would be willing to talk to Kim Jong-un on the phone. But the question is, is that really a good idea? And what would he say? Also, 2017, I think most of the world was happy to say farewell to it, but it was actually a very good year, and not just for the 1%. The New York Times' Nick Kristof will offer a refreshing dose of good news. The most important thing happening right now is not a Trump tweet, but it is this larger tapestry of progress that is transforming the world. But first, here's my take. The fire and fury over Michael Wolff's book has largely centered on the personalities and the power struggles within the White House. But behind all of that lies an important political development, one that explains the real rift between Donald Trump and his former chief strategist, Steve Bannon. President Trump seems to have abandoned populism. Remember candidate Trump? His signature issue was immigration, on which he promised an unyielding hardline, including a border wall and mass deportations. His contract with the American voter was brimming with populist measures, from tough actions against China to a trillion-dollar public works program. His economic plans focused on goodies for the middle class, from a 35 percent tax cut for middle class families to deductions for child and elderly care. He called for severe restrictions on lobbying and term limits for members of Congress. Consider Trump's final campaign ad. It's a global power structure that is responsible for the economic decisions that have robbed our working class, stripped our country of its wealth, and put that money into the pockets of a handful of large corporations and political entities. Flash forward to President Trump today. There is no wall, and his relations with China have been decidedly chummy. The main focus of his economic program has been to return vast sums of money to large corporations. In the early months of the Trump administration, Bannon must have watched with incredulity as the candidate who campaigned as a fiery outsider against the Republican establishment essentially handed over the reins of his government to House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senate leader Mitch McConnell. McConnell is quoted in Wolf's book as saying, this president will sign whatever is put in front of him. Where did Trump's populism come from in the first place? To answer that question, the book to read is not Wolf's gossipy confection, but Joshua Green's highly intelligent Devil's Bargain. 
In it, Green points out that Trump originally had a mishmash of political views that leaned in no particular direction. But he began going on talk radio and addressing conservative audiences and realized that it was not economics, but social and cultural issues like immigration that got the crowds fired up. Trump was initially indifferent to the idea of a wall, according to Green. But campaign aide Sam Nunberg is quoted as saying that when Trump tried out the idea for the first time at the Iowa Freedom Summit in January 2015, the place just went nuts. Unencumbered by any deep ideology of his own or any ethical qualms, Trump was able to adopt these issues far more quickly than his 16 competitors in the Republican primaries. He distinguished himself by taking on the most hardline positions and thus winning over the GOP base. I don't agree with many of Steve Bannon's proposals, but he is surely right in recognizing the populist fury that runs through a large swath of the country. One wonders what will happen to it as time passes and Trump's voters notice that they have ended up with something quite different than they had imagined. During the presidential transition, Bannon told Wolf that the Trump era would be like America in the 1930s with a massive public works program that would get blue-collar workers back into shipyards, mills, and mines. Instead, we appear to have a return to the 1920s, an era of unrestrained capitalism, giddy market exuberance, a shrunken state, and dramatically rising inequality. Is this what the laid-off steelworker in Ohio voted for? For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. U.S. embassy officials have been summoned by their host nations. Many around the world have labeled the president's language racist, from a U.N. spokesman to U.S. lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. This all came after President Trump in a meeting at the White House labeled African nations as shitholes, according to Senator Dick Durbin, who was there. That one word is having deep impact both domestically and abroad. Joining me to discuss are the former Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom, David Miliband. He now runs the International Rescue Committee. And Mark Kerkorian joins us from D.C. He is the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Um, David, what is your reaction and what is your reaction? What's your guess about how other countries, uh, you know, you were foreign secretary. How, how will they react to this? Well, obviously, the language that the president used has taken U.S. diplomacy into the gutter. And I think that that on its own would have been enough to lead the summonses that you're talking about. Botswana is asking, is that us? Now, I think there's a deeper point, though, because obviously there's a policy question, too. This administration's policy in respect of refugees and migrants is leading a global race to the bottom. You just have to look at the reductions in the number of refugees who are allowed to come to the U.S., the recent uh, assault on the position of the temporary protected status El Salvadorians, 200,000 uh, in the U.S. being threatened with deportation to the world's uh, homicide capital in uh, El Salvador. And I think it's the policy and the language coming together that give people the chills, frankly. It feels like not just a betrayal of American history, but a really thoroughgoing assault on America's alliances and role as a global leader. Because, of course, what's demarcated the U.S. from Russia, China, other now-labeled competitors by the administration is that on a moral plane, it's set up a standard that others should emulate. And that seems to be being thrown away. 
Um, Mark, let me ask you, when you look at the, this, the language, it feels to me like it's not just language. And I say this because, I don't know, I, I suppose I probably come from one of the nations that Trump is talking about. I don't know where India falls on the shithole spectrum, but it's brown and poor, which seem to be the, the two main criteria. Uh, and it feels to me like a kind of profound misunderstanding about America, about the American experiment, that we think that those, those countries are screwed up because of the political and economic systems in those countries, not because of the inferior genetic quality of the people. And so if the people come here to America, to the American system, they will thrive and prosper. And in fact, you look at people, I mean, Nigeria is a pretty screwed up country in many ways, though actually getting better. But Nigerian immigrants everywhere, but particularly in the United States, do fantastically. Um, and you can go on and on and on. So isn't, there, isn't it more than just the language? I, at some level, doesn't Donald Trump really not understand America and what American immigration has been all about? Nigeria is actually a great example because why are Nigerian immigrants in the United States doing well compared to, say, Hondurans or Somalis? Because Nigerian immigrants generally have been selected based on education and skill. <laughs> They're coming here as foreign graduate students, for instance, and they're staying. So it's the selection filter, really, is what you're, is, is what you're seeing here. But the fact is, if you um, look at the, the uh, outcomes of people, whether it's welfare use or income or educational attainment, of uh, people from, uh, you know, say, Somalia or Honduras, uh, they're not great in the United States. People who come with higher levels of human capital end up doing better. And so this is why the idea of using a merit-based system so that you don't decide, okay, you're from Somalia, we don't let you in. You instead judge people based on the level of education and skill and what have you. That's what's likely to lead to much better outcomes in the long run for the United States. But, but Mark, I mean, obviously, at some level, it's a truism to say people who are more educated are going to do better than, than others. The boat people who came from Indochina were not selected on the basis of some elaborate merit system and have done very well. Uh, Indian uh, Americans, some of whom came on a kind of merit system, many of whom came through the chain migration that Trump denies have done well. The, the, the broader point, it seems to me, is that human talent is sprinkled equally throughout the globe. Uh, the idea that those countries, you know, that you want to avoid people who come from countries that are screwed up or countries where everybody's brown or black, it's, it seems a profound misunderstanding of what America is about. Well, I mean, look, the, the, his comments, which, I mean, let's understand, first of all, I, I don't think that politicians in other countries don't swear in private meetings as well. But the issue here is that we are, the, the case people are making for not sending, for instance, these uh, Salvadorans or Haitians back after their ostensibly temporary status has expired, the case they're making is those countries are such bad places to live in that we cannot, must not return people. Well, isn't that basically just what the president said, that those countries are not are terrible places to live? He just said it in a vulgar kind of Archie Bunkerish way, which is his idiom. But the point of what he was saying really is what the advocates of refugee, re increased refugee resettlement and of legalizing illegal immigrants, they're essentially saying the same thing 
the president said, only with uh, different vocabulary. Is Trump saying the same thing you're saying, David Miliband? No, I think there are two aspects to this. One is the choice of language and the derogatory nature of it. The second is the link to the people themselves. Obviously, you're, I think, right to say talent is sprinkled uh, more generally. But there's another point, too, that I think is very important. People who have known persecution, oppression, poverty, the absence of freedom, when they get here, my goodness, do they value what America has to offer. We've got a very difficult or a very big issue coming up. I'd be interested in what Mark would say about this. 200,000 El Salvadorians now documented for uh, return. There are six and a half thousand Syrians on the same temporary protected status. They're in fear now that they're going to be sent back uh, to Syria. And I think it's very important to recognize that America's position as a global melting pot, the place that does have rules, that does require people to follow certain standards, that does have different aspects of merit or refugee-based element, and it should be updated. The system hasn't been updated since 86. America sets a standard. And the fact that this week America has pulled out of the UN discussions on global migration tells you about what Richard House calls abdication. This is no longer the behavior, never mind the words, of a global leader. It's the words of a country that is fearful of the future, and that runs so contrary to everything that people expect of the United States. All right, we're going to talk about all this. Stick with us. Uh, next, we will also talk about the president's canceled trip to London. He says he's not going because of something President Obama did. We will examine the veracity of that claim with the former Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom when we come back. On Thursday evening, amidst the S-storm, Donald Trump tweeted the following. Reason I cancelled my trip to London is that I am not a big fan of the Obama administration having sold perhaps the best located and finest embassy in London for peanuts, only to build a new one in an off location for $1.2 billion. Bad deal. David Miliband was the Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom. Also joining us again is Mark Kerkorian. Um, do you think that was the best uh, and most amazing embassy in London? And uh, do you think that Trump is right? Well, the new one is actually closer to Downing Street than the old one. The old one is an architectural monstrosity in uh, Grosvenor Square. The new one is a very funky, um, new, modern uh, design. But look, the truth is... President Trump has made himself phenomenally unpopular in the UK, not just on the left of the political spectrum, but on the right. And that can't be a uh, good thing. I mean, his tweeting of or retweeting of the fascist material uh, in November really touched a deep uh, chord in the UK. And we can't end up in a situation where it's easier for President Putin to go to London than it is for President Trump to go to London. And so I hope that um, he doesn't hide for too long behind this allegation that it's the Obama administration's decision. By the way, it was actually the Bush administration who took this decision to move the... No, that, that's uh, facts. You know, you're letting facts get in the way of a good argument. Mark, let me ask you back to, to uh, immigration. One of the things I wonder is whether when Donald Trump makes these kind of comments, like the, the, the shithole comment, uh, is, he, is it actually quite clever? He is trying to remind his base that he is, in fact, with them... Uh, because, of course, the, the conversation before that had been that Donald Trump had gone soft uh, on immigration, that he was now talking about a bill of love, a path for dreamers, a comprehensive reform. As somebody who supports his original hardline or versions of parts of it, are you worried that Trump is going to go soft and end up making a deal that is, in fact, much more, you know, what the Democrats want on immigration than the Republicans? Well, that's always a danger with the president because you're really never quite sure. Even during the campaign, he would 
say things that sounded more like Jeb Bush than Donald Trump. I mean, that's uh, a, a long-standing strain with the president's uh, comments, but it never ends up actually turning out that way. Uh, and as to your point about whether his, his uh, comment about these countries was a calculated move, I don't think so. I think president is just kind of like a man on the street. Uh, his, his gut reaction is just the first thing that comes out of his mouth. Uh, and so, no, I don't think, I think what, it, what we saw in that meeting where he seemed to be agreeing with the Democrats and telling them, sure, I'll sign whatever it is you send me, I think that was more calculated in the sense of trying to show him, um, you know, agreeing with everybody and being, uh, being agreeable, whereas his gut reaction is the, you know, is a relatively a more hawkish approach to immigration. So I don't think it was calculated and... Um, I don't think I'm always worried that he might go soft, uh, but it never ends up happening. So um, uh, I'm, I'm worried, but not panicking. Let me put it that way. And I can reassure Mark, there's no danger that America is going to be seen as soft on these issues. I mean, there is America is leading the race to the bottom. And the point I would make is that that example that's being set is being used by people or by leaders around the world who want to kick out refugees, and it's undermining the position of people like King Abdullah of Jordan. He's hosting 650,000 uh, refugees. He's being urged by some people in his own country to send them back to Syria. And he's undermined by the stance that's taken by this administration here, because the truth is that the vast majority of people who are coming from the troubled parts of the world are staying far away from the United States. The top 10 refugee-hosting countries in the world account for 2.5% of global income. The United States accounts for 1% of the world's refugees, and it's poor and lower middle-income countries like Bangladesh, Jordan, Ethiopia, Turkey. Uganda, who are hosting refugees, not the richer Western world. And you know, Fareed, that's an important point because the bringing refugees to the United States, even a small number of them, is extraordinarily expensive and a misuse of our resources. It, in the United States, it costs 12 times as much to resettle a refugee from the Middle East as it does to care for them in the UNHCR facilities in the countries where they're taking their first asylum. It is morally indefensible to resettle refugees because each person that we bring here represents 11 other people that that money is not helping. There is no moral justification for resettling large numbers of refugees to the West. David Milband, you get the last word. Very small number of refugees are resettled to the West. And remember, the fake news at the heart of Mark's comment is the idea that refugees are costing the American people. The American government's own report shows that refugees are paying $6 billion a year more in taxes, $63 billion over uh, 10 years, than they are receiving in benefits. These people who know the cost of persecution are contributors to the American dream. And it's worth pointing out you have a wonderful book uh, called Refugee and, and it's... Well, rescue. Rescue, sorry, and it's, and it's about uh, the refugee crisis and about the fact that even though you sound like a like a Eng Englishman from Central Casting, you are. I am fact, an Englishman from Central Casting. You are, you are the son of refugees. That's right. Um, Mark, David, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Next on GPS, North Korea. The president claimed in an interview that he and Kim Jong Un have a very good relationship. I will talk to the New Yorkers, Robin Wright, about that relationship and about North Korea when we come back.
In an interview Thursday with the Wall Street Journal, President Trump said, I probably have a very good relationship with Kim Jong-un. He refused to answer, however, when asked whether he meant that he had actually ever spoken to the North Korean leader. Trump did say recently that he would be willing to speak to Kim. But is a Trump-Kim conversation even a good idea? And what would they say? Joining me now is Robin Wright, a longtime foreign correspondent and a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Um, Robin, you've actually been in North Korea. You've talked to North Korean officials. Um, let's first start with um, what, why have they agreed to this, these talks with the South Koreans? Is it that they really have a burning desire to be part of the Olympics? I think they, they do want to be part of the Olympics, but I think more broadly, this is a power play. This is a, a ploy to prevent the administration the, from Washington to taking action against it. it buys them some time to, to noodle away on their nuclear program. Uh, and the fact is they got the South Koreans to pick up the tab for not only the athletic uh, group, but as well the, uh, the, the delegation that will go with it and the cheerleaders, you know, that, that the North Koreans are so proud of. Uh, so... You know, I'm a real cynic about whether this is going to lead to anything. And all it's going to take after the Olympics are over is one missile test, one tweet from the White House to get us back to where we were with the, South, the North Koreans being further along in their program. They have reacted to the, the, the Michael Wolff book. Yeah. Uh, explain how. Well, that's been fascinating to watch them uh, talking about how this reflects the president's humiliation. They feel that and again, remember, this is an isolated country, feel that uh, their adversary, their the d greatest danger to the North Korean state is now being humiliated, not just in the United States, but on the world stage. And so it's been kind of fun to watch the North Koreans uh, try to make capital off the Michael Wolff book. How far has the impact of fire and fury gone? You know, one of the things that I worry about is even, even if things do move in a positive direction, one of the difficulties here is that the Trump administration will have to orchestrate some kind of negotiations or deal with a number of allies, the South Koreans, the Japanese, uh, a number of quasi-adversaries, the Russians, the Chinese. And that's a very elaborate game. And, and it feels like they're, they're not, they haven't been so good at working with allies. They haven't been so good at these kind of complex negotiations. The Trump administration? I mean, the understatement of the year. And I think that his comments on immigration have underscored that he has really lost credibility. His reputation has been demolished on the world stage. His ability in the way, because of his racist attitude, his bigoted worldview, to deal with some of the bigger issues facing the world in a world that is globalizing, uh, where racial diversity is greater than ever. Uh, his America First agenda looks increasingly like white first. You, you spent, what, six or seven years yeah. in Africa. Yeah. Um, of course, the, the, the thrust of his comments seemed to have been directed towards Africa and, and, and Haiti. How do you think those, those countries are reacting? I think there is astonishment. I mean, this is a continent that he has stereotyped as one type of people. We're talking about 1.2 million people in over 50 countries. 1.2 bi billion. Sorry, 1.2 billion in 50 countries uh, that constitute more than a quarter of the, the, the world's countries. Uh, they have contributed to Nobel Peace Prizes in medicine and physics and chemistry, 10 in peace. This is a continent that has contributed that it's on the front burner in terms of developing economies, fast moving, fast growing economies. That uh, this is, and this is also a place with the demise of the Islamic State 
in Syria and Iraq. You're finding some of our greatest jihadi extremist challenges in Libya, the Sinai Peninsula, and Somalia. And so this is part of his, you know, Africa has to be part, a big part of his national security agenda. If Africa is unstable, so is America. Let me also ask you about Iran, since I have the chance to have you here. Um, you're, again, you've spent a lot of time in Iran, I think more than any um, foreign correspondent I can think of. Um, what do you think is going on in there with those protests? Uh, do you think this is a kind of existential moment for the regime or they'll weather it? Well, they've contained the protests for now. They have not contained the issue. And this will continue to bubble, whether it's in sporadic protests or in demands for change. The question is, of course, can the regime respond to the kind of structural needs? President Rouhani was trying to engage in the kind of reforms that the IMF or the World Bank would have welcomed, uh, but at a cost to the people. And these uh, kinds of subsidies that have been he's proposing cutting, uh, leading, contributing to the price hikes, date back to the Iran-Iraq war. No parliament has been willing to, to pull back on them. Uh, so there, this is a longstanding issue that has to be dealt with for the Islamic Republic to survive. You and, also, and it is interesting. He is trying to do these reforms long needed. Mm -hmm. He's trying to make the budget more transparent by uh, opening it up. And of course, it revealed how much money was going to Syria and how much money was going to Ayatollahs. He's the guy who pushed for faster internet. I mean, is he going to be the Gorbachev of, of Iran? That's been the question in Iran since the day he was elected in, the, in 2003. Uh, because to reform, a revolution always has to adapt or it collapses. And the key is often, when you look at communism in the Soviet Union or apartheid in South Africa, the key is often economics. Can an ideology sustain itself in practice? And neither communism nor apartheid could do it. And the question is, can an Islamic theocracy sustain itself, promise to give to the downtrodden and the oppressed and still be a modern economy? Despite all its oil wealth, Iran has not been able to deliver what people expect. And of course, with the with the number of cell phone users, 48 million now out of 80 million, uh, with the majority of the, of the population born since the revolution, majority of voters born since the revolution, and unemployment among the young now officially 29% and probably unofficially some closer to 40, there are hotbeds of discontent across the country. But you haven't seen the kind of unity between uh, the poor, the working class, the young, and the reformers, the liberals, and the elites, and the educated that you did in the run-up to the revolution. We're not in the midst of a counter-revolution yet. Do you think when you've traveled recently, the, the, it still is true, which has been my experience, that Iranians are surprisingly pro-American or interested uh, and excited to meet Americans and speak of it with, with no hostility? I think that was true up until the Trump administration. And I think the kind of language that has been used, again, a little bit like the language used on immigration, has led to a lot of disillusionment. And the fact that uh, some of the basics, whether it's sanctions wavered or the Boeing deal for American aircraft, that a lot of things have been put in doubt. And those are the things that the Iranian people expected to come out of it. They haven't felt the benefits. And they look at the Trump administration as having undermined the Obama administration's progress in kind of diffusing tensions that date back four decades. Robin Wright, always a pleasure. Thank you. Next on GPS, much of America now has some variety of legal marijuana, either for recreational or medicinal uses. But the Trump administration has quietly altered guidance to federal prosecutors about how to deal with pot. Is that a smart policy? When we come back.
Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to cnn.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. Now for our What in the World segment. At the end of last week, as we all obsessed over Michael Wolff's book, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, in a one-page memo, quietly turned back years of progress on marijuana reform. On January 4th, Sessions reversed an Obama-era decision that instructed federal prosecutors to relax enforcement of marijuana laws in states that had legalized and regulated it. Are we now bringing back a part of the war on drugs that had been dead and buried? Let's remember that this hugely expensive, decades-long war was deemed a failure by both sides of the aisle, crowding the country's prisons with low-level offenders. About 43% of the nearly 1.5 million drug arrests in 2015 alone were related to marijuana. And we're not just talking about trafficking. There were more than 8 million marijuana arrests from 2001 to 2010. According to the ACLU, 88% of them for possession. The United States has one of the highest rates of incarceration in the world, with more than 20% of the world's prisoners, despite having less than 5% of its population. Sessions' reefer mania has already run up against the priorities of many conservatives, like the billionaire Koch brothers, for a previous drug policy decision regarding sentencing. And legalization of marijuana is now popular even with Republicans. 64% of Americans support legalization, according to a recent Gallup poll, the highest in almost 50 years of polling, and a majority of Republicans are in favor at 51%. 29 states plus the District of Columbia have passed laws legalizing recreational or medicinal use of the drug. In a Quinnipiac University poll, three-quarters of respondents said they would oppose the federal government enforcing federal marijuana laws in states that had legalized it. And then there is the economics. With this move, the administration is targeting a swiftly growing American industry with businesses that could potentially be vulnerable to prosecution in the future. The legal cannabis industry employs between 165,000 and 230,000 people, according to the Marijuana Business Daily, which the Washington Post notes is two to three times as many as coal mining. In states with the most liberal laws, taxes on cannabis are a huge boon. Colorado raked in over $247 million in 2017 in marijuana-related tax revenue. Millions of dollars of these revenues have been put back into public schools. And what happens if these legal growers and distributors shut down? Illegal activity may take their place. As California Republican Congressman Dana Rohrenbacher says, Sessions just delivered an extravagant holiday gift to the drug cartels. I guess Sessions and Trump might prefer to call it a Christmas gift. Up next, there hasn't been a whole lot of good news on this show, nor seemingly in the world at large over the past year. But when we come back, Nick Kristoff will give us the other side of doom and gloom, the astonishing quantity of good news when we come back. Many Americans and many in the rest of the world were quite pleased to see 2017 end. When the Washington Post asked Americans for a word to describe last year, the top 10 results were chaotic, crazy, challenging, great, tumultuous, horrendous, disappointing, interesting, disastrous, and good. So that's seven negative, one neutral, and just two positive words. But my next guest is here to tell us that 2017 was the best year in human history. 
Nick Kristof is, of course, a columnist for the New York Times. So to all those skeptics out there, first explain why do you say 2017 was the best year in human history? Well, they're right about the chaos. They're right about all the problems. But in journalism, you know, we, we obviously we tend to focus on the problems, but we tend to ignore the backdrop. And the great backdrop, which continued strongly in 2017, is enormous progress against the age-old enemies of humanity, uh, illiteracy, poverty, disease. And so uh, every day last year, for example, another 217,000 people emerged from extreme poverty. Every day, um, another 300,000 uh, people got clean water for the first time. Another 325,000 got electricity for the first time. And so my argument is that the most important thing happening right now is not a Trump tweet, but it is this larger tapestry of progress that is transforming the world. Um, when, you, when you look at markers like war, civil war, um, even there you see a remarkable uptick over the last, if you look over the longer trajectory, over decades. A downtick, yeah. A downtick, sorry, That's exactly. Right. An uptick of peace. Uptick of peace. Um, interstate wars have pretty much just disappeared. Um, and the, you do still see some civil wars. There's obviously conflict. Um, but, you know, the number of people dying in any given year from warfare is way down uh, on a per capita basis and, and on a, an absolute basis from what it was. So when people hear this and say, well, wait, what about Syria? I heard all about the you know, horrors of Syria. And it's true. It was every bit as horrific as people say. But, you know, they I think people forget about the uh, Angolan War, the Mozambique War, uh, obviously Cambodia, the genocide there, Rwanda, Burundi uh, and, you know, and plus all of Indochina. Um, and so I, I think that intellectuals are often reluctant to acknowledge this progress because then it feels like one is somehow being disloyal to all the needs out there. But I think that there is a risk that if we don't acknowledge this backdrop of progress, then we simply empower the folks who want to make America great again and long for nostalgically for some kind of a, a past golden era that never really existed. So, so if you're saying if you operate out of sort of a backdrop of pessimism and fear, you're likely to come to the wrong conclusions rather than recognizing that there's a lot to be optimistic about, though there are challenges ahead. That's, that's exactly right. And I think one problem with both journalism and the humanitarian community is that they focus so much on the problems, which remain and are true, that they leave, peeling, leave people feeling kind of hopeless and disempowered and uh, it's too bad about global poverty, but nothing can be done. And, you know, 90% of people in polls say that global poverty is either worsening or is staying the same. When the extraordinary uh, trend in our lifetimes has been that when I was a kid, a uh, majority of human beings had always been poor and illiterate throughout human history, and now fewer than 10% are, uh, are in terms of absolute poverty. Well, this is, this is terrific, Nick, because what you're describing is sort of the, the, the trend, the, the signal that doesn't make news any given day. day. 
but is actually the, the bigger tidal wave in the long run. That's exactly right. I, I think that it's a fair criticism of journalism that we cover what happens on a particular day, but we don't cover what happens on every day. So we kind of missed the Industrial Revolution uh, story, and I'm afraid we're missing this progress story, too. Well, not on this show. Thank you, <laughs> sir. Um, next on GPS, China delivers a death blow to America. That's what happens metaphorically at the end of China's top grossing movie ever. And now China has submitted the film for the Oscars. I will tell you all about it when we come back. Well, the American dream isn't what it once was, but social mobility is rising in other nations. It brings me to my question. In which one of the following countries have the poorest 20% of the population seen their wealth grow twice as fast as the richest 20% from 2013 to 2016? France, Canada, Switzerland, or Japan? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is Joshua Green's Devil's Bargain. This is the book I found truly enlightening on the relationship of Donald Trump and his once chief strategist, Steve Bannon, but also on the much bigger issue of the rise of populism in America today. And now for the last look. The award season picked up with Sunday's Golden Globes and nominations will soon be announced for the Oscars, but you may have missed one of 2017's biggest blockbusters. Warrior 2 tells the story of a former Special Forces soldier fighting in a fictional African nation amidst a civil war and the outbreak of an epidemic. It is China's highest grossing film ever. Len Feng, the Rambo-esque hero, rescues civilians from a whole host of bad guys, including an American mercenary named Big Daddy. Evan Osnos's terrific recent New Yorker article titled Making China Great Again pointed out that the movie reflects the reality of China's increasing presence on the world stage. In recent years, China has been beefing up its military assets, and the movie reflects that. It's filled with high-tech weaponry and ultra-precise missiles. Even Big Daddy is impressed. I guess the Chinese military ain't as lame as I thought. The movie also suggests that China is a leader in a peaceful global order. The UN has to weigh in before the Chinese will attack the bad guys. The rescue copters are emblazoned with the UN insignia, and even the rebels acknowledge that China has protected status as a UN Security Council member. And we cannot kill the Chinese. China is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, and I need them on my side. And what about that other superpower on this UN Security Council? Well, in the midst of an evacuation, an American doctor calls the embassy to check on the status of her rescuers, only to hear this message. Welcome to the American Council. Unfortunately, we are closed. In an America first world, China is filling the vacuum in real life and on the big screen. The answer to the GPS challenge question is B. According to a court's analysis of Canadian government data, Canada has seen remarkable levels of upward social mobility in its poorest citizens lately. Between 2013 and 2016, the poorest fifth of Canadian households have seen their wealth grow by 24%, twice as fast as the wealthiest fifth over that period. In the U.S., meanwhile, the trend 
is essentially reversed. The poorest 20 percent have seen their net worth grow by 16 percent on average over the same period, while for the richest 20 percent, the number was much higher, 27.5 percent on average. It looks like the American dream might well have moved up north. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week, and I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.